Last fall, Mary Alice told me that there was a generous New Spring couple who donated some basketball tickets to the church because there was a game they couldn't attend and they wanted to give them away to someone who could. And so she said they, they gave us some NBA playoff tickets. Now, I grew up in Texas where, at least when I grew up, all the balls had corners. So I, I'm not the biggest NBA fan in the world, although I'm interested in it from time to time. I typically start watching the NBA during, during the playoffs. So I thought that was kind of unusual that we would get playoff tickets for the NBA in the fall when the playoff games are not until summer. But I thought, anything's possible today. Maybe somebody just got some advanced tickets for whoever got into the playoffs. And so anyway, Marilyn showed me the tickets, and I noticed that this playoff game was to be held at Interest Arena. Last time I looked, Wichita doesn't have an NBA team. And so I said to her, and Mary Alice, you should know, is much more inclined to be watching, um, you know, the, the Food Channel Network than ESPN. I, I, I said to her, did, did they say it was a playoff game or an exhibition game? And she said, well, it was one of those. <laughs> now, if you're not a sports fan, the reason why all those people were laughing is an exhibition game doesn't count. It's a fun, I love, I mean, I grew up a Dallas Cowboy fan, just have pity upon me, but I grew up a Cowboy fan, and I used to love to go to exhibition games at Texas Stadium, because exhibition games are where the young talents show up. You give the young players a chance to see who's going to make the team and who's not going to make the team, and the veteran players get to shake off the rust, but at the end of the day, an exhibition game doesn't count against the record. It doesn't matter if you win or lose. It's an exhibition game. A playoff is a totally different thing. So, you know, a playoff, only one team goes on, and the other team has to go home. Only one team can advance. In life, there are some games that don't matter. There's some things that don't matter. And in, and in sports, there are games that don't matter. For instance, a week ago, the Chiefs had a regular season game that didn't matter. They played San Diego, and they were already seated in the playoffs and it didn't help them if they won. It didn't hurt them if they lost. And Andy Reid sat most of the starters and played the subs. And they still nearly won the game. But it didn't matter. The game they played yesterday mattered. It was a playoff game. And just so in life, there are some exhibition games. There are some, there are some contests, internal contests that lead to choices. And the choice that we make is an exhibition game. It's important for the moment, but it doesn't have long-term ramifications. For instance, the car you drive. You know, my car is not here today. It will be my wife's van, but usually my car is sitting out in the parking lot. I drive a three-year-old Hyundai Genesis. I love my car, but it's an exhibition game. I mean, nobody ever stood over a grave and said, oh, no, Grandpa drove a Toyota. If only he'd driven a Subaru. I mean, it's just unimportant. I mean, whether you drive a Mercedes-Benz or you drive an, you know, an old Ford Taurus, really, in the grand scheme of things, what does it matter? The places that you travel to, I've had the privilege of visiting some nice places. It's nice, but it's an exhibition game. Your fashion style, your personal fashion style. Some of you are high fashion people. Others of us buy whatever's on sale, regardless if it's our size or not. And yes, it, it matters, and it's got, you've got temporary significance, but a thousand years from now, your fashion sense and your fashion style, it'll be an exhibition game. Even the house you live in. You, whether you live in a $3 million home, I hope you do, that's nice, 
Or if you live in a $50,000 house. A hundred years from now, it isn't really going to matter. Those are exhibition games. The games that don't really go to the final standings. But there are contests in our life that are playing out on a daily basis. In other words, there are issues that we've got to resolve. And it's like teams are in playoffs. You've got one team telling you to do one thing. You've got another force telling you to do something else. You've got internal forces vying for control. And ultimately, you will make a choice, which is like the outcome of a playoff game. And when you get to that place, one team goes home and the other team advances. For instance, I'll give you a few examples. Consumption versus purpose. You can either live your life for consumption or for purpose, not both. One team will go home, one team will advance. Um, instant gratification versus long-term success. Both teams can't advance. One team will advance, the other team will go home. Venting your feelings versus self-control. One team will advance, another team will go home. See, all of us would like instant gratification. All of us would like long-term success. We have those internal forces that are vying. They're playing out the game. It's the playoffs. And these are games that matter. These are games that will go to the final standings. So in the next five weeks, and by the way, please just please grant me some latitude today. I'm really not even going to preach a sermon. This is just an introduction to the series. And I almost apologize for that, but I just want to set up how important the next five talks are going to be. There's a book, I think, we're out of, I think we're out of stock in our bookstore, but you can get it online or you can buy it at a Christian bookstore. There's a, and for all of you who are professionals and someone in your profession writes a book and you think, wow, I wish I'd written that book. As a minister, when Andy Stanley, who's pastor of North Point Church in Alpharetta, when he wrote a book called The Principle of the Path, I thought, wow, I wish I'd written that. And I'm guessing every minister who's ever counseled felt the same way. But when Andy wrote Principle of the Path, his overarching premise was this, that many people find themselves at destinations and they pretend that they don't know how they got there. I mean, I've had people come to me for counseling and, and their, their life was very dysfunctional and they present it to me and it's as if they want to say, Mark, explain this to me. And Andy in his book talked about a similar experience and he said, you want to say to them, didn't you know you were on a path? that led to that destination. It wasn't by accident. You, you were on a path, and you just got to a destination. Well, that's what this series is about. Because the truth of the matter is, in every important area of our life, in every playoff that's going to go to the final standings and really matter, we're on paths. We're on paths that are going to lead to destinations. You're on a path financially today. And, and, and that that path is going to lead to a destination. If I'm spending money foolishly buying whatever catches my attention, I can't pretend to hope that someday I'm going to have plenty of money in savings. You know, I see people all the time and I get stuck behind them that are buying lottery tickets hand over fist. And I wonder, and I'm not saying, not necessarily ripping on that, but I'm just saying I wonder how many people are spending money foolishly hoping that some kind of windfall is going to come and undo the traveling on that path. All of us are on a path sexually. We're on a path that's going to lead to a destination. All of us are on a path emotionally. We're thinking in thought patterns that are going to lead to a destination. We're all on paths relationally. We're on, we're on a path employment-wise. All of us are. I hope you're on a path that leads to promotion and increased remuneration, and I hope you're not on a path that leads to probation and discharge. But all of us 
are on a path. All of us are on a path spiritually. And all of us are on a path eternally. And as Andy says, and then I want to give, I want to quote him here. He said, "Direction, not intention, determines destination." How many of you have had a, talked to a friend? Maybe you met him at Starbucks, or maybe you talked to him at work or something. And, and they've made a really foolish decision that's got them in a really bad place. And they're looking at you like, "I don't know this happened." And here's what they'll say to us: They'll say, "I didn't want to do that. It wasn't my intention to wind up there." And what Andy is saying is not our intentions that get us to places; it's the path that we travel. You, you all are too young to remember this, but when I was a kid, there was a saying that people used to say, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. It, it, what we intend is not going to bring about our destination. It's the path that we travel. Well, here's the thing. If it's an exhibition game, we've already established the fact that it's not really all that important. So the path that you take to the car you drive, pretty much irrelevant. But when it comes to the really key issues of life, here's my question for us today. How can we know we're on the right path in a timely manner? In a timely manner? I know that no one else has experienced this today because we're all in church and we're all wearing our halos. But let me just tell you this. I've done some pretty stupid things in my life, just, just between you and me. And, and here's my issue with that. So many times I thought, I thought my path was fine until I hit the wall. And then when I would hit the wall, I would think, well, what was I thinking? Isn't that strange? It's like hitting the wall is such an intellectual experience. Because when you hit the wall, it's like, you know, I was on the wrong path. How can we know the right path in a moment when it really matters? I, I, I guess this is very important to me. And I've, I've, in the 29 years I've been at New Spring, I've probably told this story a dozen times. And if I live, I'll probably tell it a dozen more because it's an experience that's tattooed on my soul. My grandfather died when I was 14. And honestly, the first three quarters of his life, my grandfather did not lead a good life. He and my grandmother had nine kids. My dad is the oldest of those nine kids. My grandmother was in the spiritual realm. She would be a rock star. My grandmother was one of the greatest women I ever even heard about. I have a cousin who's a Christian entertainer and author, and she, Anita Renfro, and she writes about my grandmother as being such a game changer in life. But my grandfather was not a believer. He, he overused alcohol. He had a horrible temper. He was not a spiritual man. I never knew that person because in the fourth quarter of his life, my grandfather accepted Christ, and he loved God with all his heart. That's the only grandfather I know. But I do remember when I was 14, my grandfather was dying in a burn at Texas hospital. He had like two or three days to live. And I went into his room with my dad, who was his oldest son. And I'll never forget as my grandfather on his deathbed looked up and saw my father and called him by his name. And he said, Winford, he said, I've just now learned how to live. And now it's time to die. I can't get that out of my head. Just now learned how to live. And now it's time to die. Going pro to the playoffs is all about knowing how to live before you die. It's, it's knowing the paths. Because remember, this is not about intentions. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. It's not about wanting to be at the right place. It's traveling the paths that will get you to the destinations where you want to go. There is a book in the Bible called Proverbs. 
I, this is my second series called Going Pro. Three years ago, I did a series called Going Pro, and we looked at the book of Proverbs, and I joked and said to me, when I read the word Proverbs, I always think of proverbs, because this is life living at the professional level. This is not amateur living. This is pro living. And, and so in this book of proverbs or proverbs, what we learn is we learn how, we learn how to find the right paths. Every verse I'm going to give you after a few moments is going to come from the book of Proverbs. But for just a few moments, I want to take you to another book. It's First Kings. It's a book of history. Because I want to introduce you to the man who wrote the book of Proverbs. Because we have asked a question, how can we know the right paths to take before it's too late? The man's name is Solomon. He's probably about 20 years of age. And he is the new king of Israel. He is succeeding the greatest king who ever lived, David. He is David's youngest son. I'm sure that most people thought that one of David's older sons would succeed David. But David basically on his deathbed decided that Solomon was going to be king and left instructions. But of course, David died pretty quickly after that. And so this young man, probably about 20 years of age, found himself king of this wonderful empire, Israel. And God came to Solomon in a dream. What if God came to you and said, you've got one wish, what would you like? A billion dollars? be the most beautiful woman in the world, to be famous? What would you wish for if God came to you and said, I will do anything for you that you like? Well, this happened for Solomon, and it's in 1 Kings 3, 5. God said, ask, what shall I give you? And Solomon's response is amazing. He gave, first of all, a verse that's one of my favorite verses in the Bible, and I think about it nearly every day. Solomon said, I'm a little child. Now, he was 20 or so, so he wasn't really a child, but he, he just said, really, God, I feel like a child. I feel like a baby. And I love this line. Oh, how I love this line. He said, I don't know how to go into a room and how to come out of a room. It's not, not only God, I don't know how to run the country. I, I don't even know how to walk in the room. And I don't, know, I don't know how to make an entrance and make an exit. Now, that's pretty, that's pretty basic, isn't it? Solomon's saying, God, before we get down to the fact that I don't know how to make great decisions for an economy or military decisions, God, I, I, I just don't even know how to make an entrance and how to make an exit. And the reason why that's been so special to me is I feel that way too sometimes. And then he went on to extrapolate, and he said, Here I am in the midst of your unchosen people, a nation so great and numerous they can't be counted. Give me, you see, what do you ask for? Give me an understanding heart. Synonym, give me wisdom. Give me the ability to think, to see things from your perspective. Give me an understanding heart so that I can govern your people well and know the difference between right and wrong. For who by himself is able to govern? I, I just paraphrased his statement into four comments because these helped me. Solomon said to God, and by the way, you're going to see in just a moment how God loved this prayer, so you might want to think about these four things, and you might want to tell them to God on the way home, okay? First of all, Solomon said, I don't know what to do. Number two, he was saying, I don't know what works and what doesn't work. Guys, Solomon wrote this about 950 B.C. It's much more applicable in the first weekend of January 2014. And it was then. Grant me a little space for a moment. Sociologists tell us there have been three main periods of human history. The first, in, in a lot of you study this in, in, in sociology or college courses. The first era of human history is called the pre-modern era. 
Pre-modern era, and that's from the beginning of human history until the Industrial Revolution. Pre-modern era says, era says, we don't know the meaning to life, but it's going to be revealed to us from a higher source. Higher sources will give us a meaning of life. All the world's religions were developed during the pre-modern era. And then there was the modern era when people decided that God was no longer a useful hypothesis and that science was going to reveal to us the meaning of life. But by the 60s, science had raised more questions than it had given answers, and especially in regard to purpose. And beyond that now, we had nuclear arsenals available to blow up the world multiple times. So we realized science was not going to give us the meaning of life. And in the 60s, we entered what sociologists call the postmodern era. In the postmodern era, the premise is there is no meaning to life, really. The meaning to life is how you define it. You got your truth, I have my truth. You see truth one way, I see truth another way. There is no such thing as absolute truth. And we live in that world today. And here is the outcome of that. There is a presumption then that there's a moral equivalence between all positions. But there's one thing I've learned pastoring postmoderns all my life, and that's this, that even though people may believe that there's a moral equivalence between all positions, not everything works. If you're diabetic today, you could walk into a pharmacy and say, I believe that all serums are morally equivalent. Maybe so, but only insulin will work. See, you know, uh, I don't mean you and me, but it seems to me sometimes our culture is like bobble-headed dogs, and the media and the culture tells us to think away, and, and we just go right along with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything's morally equivalent. Yeah, but not everything works. I'm just being too personal here today in this introduction to the series, but I'm a baby boomer, and um, I fall in, I was born in one of the median ages of the baby boom, and we did some really crazy things. For all of you younger people who came after us, it's our fault. We wrote the book on stupid stuff, and we did it. But there's one thing that I can tell that's a big difference between my generation and like the millennial generation. When we did stupid stuff, we knew it was stupid. Our parents told us, or tried to tell us, our grandparents tried to tell us, our aunts and uncles tried to tell us, our coaches tried to tell us, our teachers tried to tell us, but we did it anyway. And at least when our lives blew up, we, we, we know why we're hurting. The odd thing is I talk to millennials sometimes, and they're hurting, and it's like nobody ever told them that it didn't work. And so I love Solomon's request because to me, it's just perfect for the age that you and I live in. Solomon's saying, God... I don't know what works and what doesn't work. And then the fourth thing he said is give me understanding. Give me wisdom so I can function. I got to function. And I can't function without wisdom. Well, how did God react to this? Oh, I got to tell you, God was all over it. The Bible says the Lord was pleased that Solomon asked for wisdom. You know what God did? God said to Solomon, you didn't ask for money, I'm going to make you the richest guy in the world. You didn't ask for a long life, I'm going to give you a long life. You didn't ask for victory over your enemies, I'm going to give you peace, all your kingdom. God said, I'm going to, give you, I'm going to make you the wisest man who ever lived because you asked for wisdom, then I'm going to give you all the stuff you didn't ask for. That's how big wisdom is to God. All right, we're just introducing this then. What is wisdom? Because it's really interesting to ask that question because Solomon had he had at his fingertips the most brilliant men in the kingdom. So consequently, conventional wisdom, worldly wisdom, intellectual wisdom was at his fingertips. So given the fact that he could have summoned the most brilliant people in the world to come into his room and give him answers, why then was he asking God for wisdom? It's real easy, and it will help us to find wisdom from a biblical perspective. You take the most brilliant men and women in the world, 
and they have to rely on observation and other people's observation. So basically, all we can really know from human wisdom is what we can see looking out. The kind of wisdom that Solomon was asking for is the kind of wisdom, the vantage point that God has looking down and God seeing what we can't see. When you have wisdom, when you have God's wisdom, you have a perspective that is not available just from, just from observation. You can actually look at life from a perspective that cannot fail. And that's what Solomon was asking for. Solomon said, God, I want your wisdom. Why? So he'd know the path to take. I don't have time to read these verses, and so I'm not going to put them up on the screen right now. But if you're taking notes, you might want to read Proverbs 4, 18 and 19, because it says the way of the pathway of those who have wisdom is like dawn breaking. And he said the pathway of those who don't have wisdom is like people walking in the dark and they stumble and they don't even know what they're stumbling over. And then in Proverbs 4, 26, it says, mark out a straight path for your life and then stay on that path. Don't get sidetracked. And in Proverbs 14, 22, it says, if you plan to do evil, you'll be lost. But if you plan to do right, you will get love and faithfulness. Now, three years ago, I did a series called Going Pro. And we explored the book of Proverbs. And that's available. Some of you in your life groups are going to be using that as a curriculum. When I finished Going Pro three years ago, I had two thoughts that were in my head. Number one is we need to be reminded of God's book of wisdom pretty frequently. And the second thing is there's so much of Proverbs I didn't even touch. So from the very beginning, three years ago, I wanted to do a sequel on the book of Proverbs. And that's what Going Pro 2, the playoffs, is. I try never to do this and always hate it when ministers do, but I want to give you a theological term. Much of the book of Proverbs is in what we call the form of antithetic parallelisms. I guess that's really a semantic term, but a linguistic term, but para, uh, antithetic parallelisms. A parallelism is, is, a, is, a, is a statement made up of two statements, and an antithetic parallelism, parallelism is a contrast. Most of the book of Proverbs is in this, so it's like a playoff. Let me give you some examples. Uh, Proverbs eleven twenty seven. If you search for good, you will find favor. If you search for evil, it will find you. See that? That's a, it's two statements, and they're antithetic. They're contrasting. Your kindness will reward you, but your cruelty will destroy you. Uh, a fool is quick-tempered, but a wise person stays calm when insulted. Work hard and become a leader. Be lazy and become a slave. Proverbs thirteen three. Those who control their tongue will have a long life. Opening your mouth can ruin everything. So. There's a lot, of great, a lot of great wisdom there. You see what I'm saying? It's like two teams vying for control. And so in this series, each week, we're going to look at one of these playoffs. And the, ser the sermons really begin next week. But in this brief message, and I'm going to talk about 10 more minutes. In this brief message, I want to talk to you about the big game. Because Proverbs is primarily about two paths of life. And everything else that we're going to talk about, telescope into this. It's the way of wisdom versus foolishness. Living your life according to God's wisdom in which you have the vantage point of God's perspective and living life without God's wisdom. And uh, we're going to talk about that and, and, and I'm, going to, I'm going to divide it into three categories. It's very important that we do that because we want to be on the right path. Proverbs 14, 12 says, there is a path before each person that seems right, but it ends in death. So we need to know God's vantage point and God's wisdom. Now, I'm going to divide it into three categories. I'm going to give you three groups of verses. Let's just say you're dating for a moment. And some of you are dating. Uh, some of you are married. You have now stopped dating. You're no longer dating. Okay. 
But if, you, if you're dating, if you're beginning to date, and you see somebody you're interested in, you want to know what that person is like, you want to know how you should approach that person, and what would it be like if you had a marriage with that person. So we're going to talk about wisdom for about seven or eight minutes, and we're going to approach wisdom that way. We're going to say, what is wisdom like? God's wisdom. Number two, what should be our approach to wisdom? And number three, what would a life of wisdom be like? I mean, what would it be like to be standing at the Super Bowl holding the Lombardi trophy with the confetti dropping down on you? What would it be like to live your life according to God's wisdom? Okay, here we go. Real fast, a little quick flyover. What's the nature of wisdom? If you want to know what wisdom is, what would you know about wisdom? The first thing is wisdom works. Wisdom works. The Bible says about Proverbs, their purpose is to teach people to live disciplined and successful lives and to help them do what is right, just, and fair. That's huge. Um, we all know people who are successful in the eyes of the world, but they didn't, they're not right, just, and fair. They got to where they are by knifing other people in the back, stepping on other people, lying and cheating. But the Bible tells us that if you live your life according to wisdom, that you can be both successful and right, just, and fair. I've had new springers tell me before, Mark, you just can't function in my career and be, live the Christian life. I kind of like to have to go into work and turn into a different person because you just can't do what I do and tell the truth. Or you, you just can't do what I do and, and, and you know, be kind and gracious to everybody. Hogwash. Because the Bible says right here that if you, if you live according to wisdom, you can both be successful and do what is right, just, and fair. And then the second thing I want you to see about wisdom is wisdom is like, it's like a winning team. Wisdom builds on itself. For those of you who love to watch the NFL, isn't it true that winning teams tend to win games they should lose, but they have a culture of winning? And isn't it true that losing teams tend to lose games that they should win because they have a culture of losing? Did I mention the Dallas Cowboys? I mean, I was watching the Patriots the other day. They're down by about 10 or 12 points with three minutes left to go. Uh, but I'm thinking they're going to pull this out, and they did. Why? Because they have a culture of winning. See, it's, it's interesting in life. So many people think the way to get ahead is to have a prime education. It's to know the right people. It's to kiss up to the right people. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that wisdom, like any other successful thing, wisdom tends to build on itself. It's a culture of winning. The Bible says this in Proverbs 1.5, let the wise listen to these Proverbs and become even wiser. As I was getting ready for the series, I, I was kind of thinking to myself, there are wise people who are going to be all over this, sitting on the edge of their seat, and they're going to be people that are going to say, I didn't get anything out of that. It's like the old saying, the rich get richer. Wise people will listen, and they will get wiser. It's a culture of winning. Number three, wisdom doesn't assume that it knows. Proverbs 12, 15, fools think their own way is right, but the wise listen to others. Number four, wisdom keeps you from trouble before it happens. Proverbs 1, 17, if a bird sees a trap being set, it knows to stay away. And then number five, wisdom takes life seriously. People who wink at wrong cause trouble, but a bold reproof promotes peace. In other words, wisdom takes wrong and right seriously. So what do we learn about wisdom? Number one, it works. Number two, it builds on itself. Number three, wisdom doesn't assume that it knows. Number four, wisdom keeps you from trouble before it happens. And number five, wisdom takes life seriously. Now, what does God coach us to do in regard to wisdom? What is God coaching us for the next five weeks? Number one, if you want wisdom, 
Well, that's the, that's the key. Wisdom is had by people who want it. I don't want to develop this too much because I don't have time, but success in life is not necessarily had by the best educated, by the best advantaged, by the most beautiful. You know, I learned this many years ago as a leader. I knew there were going to be a lot of communicators who were far more gifted than I. And I knew there were going to be a lot of guys with a lot better educations than I. But the one thing I wanted more than anything else is I wanted to see lives change. And I thought to myself, I can do one thing better than anybody else. I can want it more than anybody else. Other people may be smarter. They may be more gifted. They may be more talented. They may have better backgrounds and better educations, but nobody can want it as much as I do. How many times have we seen athletes that they weren't even drafted? They're free agents, but just nobody wanted it more than they did. And that's how wisdom works. Wisdom isn't necessarily had by the most religious. It's not had by the most intellectualist, just those people who want it. Because see, the thing about it is, the kind of wisdom we're talking about, being able to understand the key things that lead to the important playoff games of life, that is given by God. In fact, James said in the book of James, if anybody is missing wisdom, let him ask God for it. So here's the thing. There may be a lot of things in life that you can't have. You may not be as attractive as you want to be. You may not be as intelligent as you may want to be. You're probably not as rich as you want to be, but here's the thing. If you want wisdom, and if you really want it, you can have it. But you've got to be intentional about it. Proverbs, the most important proverb of all is Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Seek his will in all you do, and he will direct your paths. You want to be on the right path? Intentionally go after wisdom. In Proverbs 2, 2, tune your hearts to wisdom, concentrate on understanding, cry out for insight, ask for understanding, for the Lord grants wisdom. So if you want wisdom, that's the key. You've got to want it. Number two, it's important where you look for wisdom because God tells us not to look for wisdom at the dump. In Proverbs 15, verse 14, a wise person is hungry for knowledge while the fool feeds on trash. Guys, there's no shortage of trash in our culture today. So if you want wisdom, you're going to have to feed on a source of wisdom. Number three, wisdom plus community has an exponential effect. If you want to be wise, the Bible says it this way, walk with the wise and become wise. Associate with fools and get into trouble. Now, here's the thing. And this is really important if you're married. Because if you decide that you want to be a wise person and you hang out with another wise person, it doesn't have an addition effect. It's got an exponential multiplication, a multiple uh, effect. See, one wise person plus another wise person isn't two people in addition. It's like it's squared. If there are three, it's like it's cubed. When you hang with wise people, it's got an exponential effect. And then let's talk about what it would be like to live a life of wisdom. And I'm hoping this will bring you back for the next five weeks. What's it like to win? What would it be like if you buy into this and you decide, I'm going to want wisdom, I'm going to get it, I'm going to learn over these next five weeks how to live my life according to God's perspective? What could I hope for? Number one, personal success. And I stress personal for you. Because the Bible says if you become wise, you will be the one to benefit. So personal success. Number two, safety. Proverbs 2.11 says, wise choices will watch over you. Understanding will keep you safe. Now, there are three statements in this verse, and I've read the first two. 
The first two are kind of existential, but the third one's very specific. Let's read the whole verse. Wise choices will watch over you. Understanding will keep you safe. Number three, wisdom will save you from evil people, from those whose words are twisted. Isn't it true that a big part of life is just not listening to the wrong people? How many people wound up with a horrific marriage or relationship because they just believe some jerk? Fair? And yet the Bible says that wisdom will protect you. It will, it, it will keep you from being able to know when you're, you know, you're being handed a line. The Bible says, when the storms of life come, the wicked are whirled away, but the godly have a lasting foundation. Number three, what does it mean to have wisdom? Legacy, legacy. The Bible says, the fears of the wicked will be fulfilled. The hopes of the godly will be granted, Proverbs 10, 24. Proverbs eleven seven. when the wicked die, their hopes die with them. My dad passed away, as you know, this year, and this next one's very meaningful to me. It says, we have happy memories of the godly. That's people who live from God's perspective. We have happy memories of the godly, but the name of a wicked person rots away. Isn't it true? Someone could say a name to you. If they knew you well, they could say a name to you, and it would bring a smile. It's a grandmother, a grandfather, mom or dad, an educator in your life, a wise person, and they're gone now. But even though that person is God, you think about something they said nearly every day. It changed your life. And every time you think about that person, you smile. Every time you think about that person, you say, yeah, that person left me richer. On the other hand, I've seen people who were multimillionaires and they died and people came back to the church and ate potato salad and forgot about them. Because it was, life was all about them. It was all about life from, on their terms, from their perspective. Legacy. And then I'll close with this. This is my favorite. What would it mean to win? What would it mean to get to the end of your life, to be standing in the Super Bowl holding the Lombardi Trophy of life, the wisdom? What would it be like to get to the ultimate place? If you ask me today, Mark, what do you want more than anything? And we've already talked about wisdom, so let's assume that. If you said, Mark, what do you want more than anything else in the world? I will tell you. I want favor. I want God's favor. Because when God gives you favor, you get access with that. That's important. You know, it's better to have access to a boat than to own a boat. It's better to have access to a pool than to own a pool. It's better to have access to a plane than to own a plane. And the thing about God giving you favor is you get access into places that you would never have access to otherwise. Somebody will say, well, I think God treats everybody the same. There are certain aspects when it comes to promises and conditions and so on. But when it comes to like who gets to do what in life, no, God doesn't treat everybody the same. There are people who have favor on them. God blesses them, and that's what I desire. Because here's the thing. People who have favor, they're not necessarily the most intelligent, the most beautiful. They're not the most gifted. They don't have the best backgrounds in the world. They're not the most connected. And they're always surprising us because we look and we say, how did she get him? How did he get that promotion? Favor. And how do you get God's favor? By living a life of wisdom. Let me read the verse to you. The Lord detests the way of the wicked, but he loves those who pursue godliness. 
See, you know how it just really tripped God's wire for your pardon? I hope that didn't sound sacrilegious, but do you know what made God so happy with Solomon? He asks for the thing that causes God to give favor. See, God said, I'm going to give you wisdom, but then I'm going to give you riches and all these other things too. God loves people who are into wisdom. As I close out, though, I want to show you something kind of ironic about that proverb. In fact, to be honest with you, I didn't notice until I'd already selected it to end the sermon. For those of you who've heard me speak through the years, you'll never believe this, but I was bivocational in my early 20s, and not only was I associate pastor of a church, I also taught English. Can you believe that? And my grammar is horrific now, but every once in a while, I'll pay attention to something grammatical. And I looked at that proverb, and I thought, there's the most unusual irony about the grammar of that proverb. And some of you have already spotted it. You know it's a parallelism. And you know it's an antithetic parallelism. So you look at the subject of both of those lines, and we're not surprised. God is the subject of both of them. The Lord detests, the Lord loves. So the Lord is the subject. The verbs, well, we know that they're going to be antithetic, so they are opposites. Detests and loves. It's the object where it gets interesting. Because we see in that second statement, the Lord loves those who are aimed toward wisdom. The Lord loves those who are godly. We expect then it to correlate with the first line and for it to say the Lord detests those who are ungodly. But it isn't what it says, does it? It says the Lord loves those who pursue wisdom. He detests the way of those who are ungodly. If you're on the wrong pathways today and it's leading to bad destinations, you need to know something. God doesn't hate you. He just hates that pathway that's killing you. He just hates those choices that are eating you up. He doesn't hate you. You see, you can't stop God from loving you. You can't stop him. He's going to love you no matter what. If you're, if you're seeking wisdom, he's going to give you favor and he's going to love you. Even if you're walking down bad pathways, he still loves you right now. He just wants you to change jerseys. He wants you to change teams. He loves you. He just wants you to live according to wisdom. Guys, I thank you for being here. This series really starts next weekend as we get into this. But I'm so glad you came today. Thank you God, very much. God bless you. Y'all be safe going home.